Hi, Esme. Hi, Amy. Welcome to the fourth episode of Gender Critical Story Hour. And for this episode, we've got a really great guest for you, none other than Barbara Kay, who for a lot of our listeners requires no introduction whatsoever. But if you don't know who Barbara is, uh, she's a longtime columnist with the Canadian uh, newspaper, The National Post. And she also writes for the Post Millennial, the Epoch Times, and several other outlets. And Barbara has always taken on the really tough subjects and um, was one of the very first Canadian columnists and commentators to raise an eyebrow at this whole transgender thing and gender identity ideology. And, you know, she's been covering it ever since diligently. And um, she is a real inspiration to both Amy and myself, because as Amy points out, what is it about Barbara and her Wikipedia? So if you Google Barbara, you'll notice that not only does she have one Wikipedia page, she has two. So there's the Barbara K page and there's also the Barbara K controversy page. (laughs) So, So, you know, when she's got that, she's kind of badass and um, doesn't shy away from the controversy. So um, we recorded this uh, last week. And, um, and we, it was so much fun. And uh, we uh, talked about Bill C-6, and that is the uh, conversion therapy bill that's going through uh, Canadian Parliament right now. It's in, in front of this, uh, the Standing Committee on Justice and Human Rights. We also uh, got a little bit into another uh, advocacy area that Barbara and I have known each other and worked together with uh, for going back about five, six years. And that's how I first got to know Barbara. And she's an absolutely wonderful person and very generous. And um, she told us a little bit about one of her theories, which was... Well, yeah, stay, listen to the episode and find out about a very weird internet rabbit hole that you likely have not heard of. And it it combines pitbull activism and transgenderism uh, and queer theory. So very bizarre. And but yeah. Right? The confluence. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. And I, yeah, I just want to say like, I have been reading Barbara's columns for years and years at the National Post. And even when I uh, felt like I was very uh, not politically aligned with her, I've always regarded her with a lot of respect and felt like she's a truth teller. Um, And I, I still feel that way. So this was a really great episode. I think people are going to enjoy it. Barbara, we're so happy to have you here because when Amy and I first came up with the idea and we, we had our wish list of, um, of guests, of course, you were right up at the top. Yeah, that's very flattering. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. And because you are one of the original gender critical women in Canada to speak out uh, in the media, um, you were, I think, the single the voice of women saying, hold on, wait a second here. I mean, um, Megan Murphy came in, but I think that you were the original one. Well, I, I, I don't know if I was or wasn't, but I did. I, I went back to look at uh, my columns uh, to find out when I, the first column that I had written on this subject to see, uh, because I'd forgotten, I'd written a lot 
And the first one I wrote was in 2011. So that's nine years ago. Um, when I became aware that this was, hey, this is, this is a real thing. It's not just a few oddball parents deciding that they're not going to give their child or tell people, you know, remember that couple in Toronto who had this baby and they weren't going to tell people what sex it was because they didn't want the child to be socially constructed to either gender and to choose its own gender. I mean, and I thought, wow, what a, that's a very strange and unusual thing. And it quickly became apparent that, wait a minute, it's not quite as unusual as I'm assuming because this is actually something that's coming to the surface, but that's been simmering in certain quarters for a long time. It just hasn't been as widely understood that this is a real movement. Um, so the first column I wrote in 2011 uh, was, was inspired by a, a parent that had written to me that his, his son, his first grade class, had been told that they were going to have um, a day when everybody dressed as the opposite gender. And he was told he should wear a dress and the girls were going to wear, you know, boy attire. And he was very disturbed by this and he wouldn't let his son go to school that day. Uh, so, of course, he was very criticized for that. And I, I found that a very disturbing thing myself. That, uh, uh, but I, I, I had no idea of what was beneath it. I, that was sort of my introduction to gender ideology and how it was being used in the schools to actually recruit children to the idea that uh, gender is entirely fluid, that uh, it's very easy to slip between genders, and, and that it's, it's quite, quite a fun thing to do and quite a good thing to do. So um, nine years ago, and... and then I noticed that they, that there was one in 2011. And then as the years went by, I was writing about it much more frequently as I began to really understand the, the, uh, the incredible speed with which the movement was um, percolating into, uh, you know, society through every institution, especially our education system. Was that the national post where you started? Um, yes. That column. Yeah. And was the editor fine with running that back in 2011? Yes. Uh, in 2011, I could, I don't remember having any restrictions on what I could write about. Uh, I, in fact, I only started to feel restrictions coming in, in the last, I would say around 2017, things began to get a little tenser. Um, I, I, you know, after Caitlyn Jenner, I think Caitlyn Jenner was a kind of tipping point where, and the whole idea of dead naming and then the pronouns, then Jordan Peterson uh, in 2016 with his videos on compelled speech and the pronoun uh, thing. Then there was, um, uh, I read a book uh, by Alice Drager, uh, Galileo's Finger. Do you remember that? And I no. began to get it. Yeah. Yeah. She, she wrote about the uh, academic scene, how vicious, how vicious um, those who wrote honestly and objectively about gender dysphoria were being harassed, uh, mobbed, really, by uh, trans activists. And, and, and I, it was very clear that this was a, a very highly organized and well-funded movement. Um, that really was moving in like um, uh, an army uh, that had been, you know, training 
uh, off the grid for years and, and had decided, okay, you know, now we move out of academia and into society and they already had all their targets picked out uh, and, and they just uh, flooded the market uh, with, uh, you know, propaganda um, and, and the appeasement factor that came into play so quickly was a marvel to see. I've never seen anything like it. I mean, certainly the mm-hmm. gay rights movement seems very slow by comparison and very tentative compared to, to this movement. Yeah, I, I do. Um, I'm really struck by how quickly it's been taken up by society in general. Um, and then last year, the Denton's report came out. Did you, did you ever get a chance to see that, Barbara? Is, um, oh, yes, about how the law firm was advising them on how you... Right. Um, yeah. So once we saw that report, it all started to make sense mm-hmm. that they had years of getting their tentacles into government and NGOs. And the strategy was, do not go to the media. Do not make, do not, you know you know, make, make a big splash about it, go in quietly and infiltrate. And this was done very, very deliberately. And it's fascinating, you know, because I think what they were able to do was um, read the, uh, the temperature of, you know, Western society. They knew uh, that they were going to piggyback on the LGB. Mm -hmm. They could see that it was ripe. And I remember um, it would have been around 2015. Was that when they got uh, marriage equality in the United States around that, around that year? I Something. think, yeah, maybe even a little earlier. I mean, ours yeah. was 2003. Uh, it was certainly after marriage equality came in and there were no more uh, real serious battles to fight for equality yeah. know, in the LGB community. Uh, they saw this as, okay, this is, now it's us. Uh, and what, 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 what was amazing was that the whole LGB community was so slow and still many of them have not, have not twigged to the reality that uh, the trans activist movement is not their friend, is not their ally, yeah. but is their supplanter. Uh, and that they they are uh, they are superseding them as the new civil rights movement, and that mm-hmm. what they are seeking is actually antithetical to uh, the 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 um, rights that the the gay rights movement. They're actually erasing. Um, they certainly are. But then the whole thing. You yeah. have the whole brand of of. Uh, lesbians and gays who are calling themselves queer who they they've bought they've bought into this and that and there's a split there and i bring up the marriage equality uh in the united states um because that's when i really knew because um my publicist at the time who was taking care of my my film um gay guy um very identifies as queer so when that came in i I said to him, I said, oh, isn't this, this is great. Like you've gotten, you've won everything. You have everything now, right? And he just looked at me solemnly and said, now we fight for the trans, <laughs> right? And, and that's, that's when I went, oh, okay. And then I had a couple of other conversations with him where I was qu- questioning the trans narrative. And I said, 
but trans really, I mean, all that's doing is reinforcing stereotypes, gender, you know, sex role stereotypes. And he, he, he just, he kind of went ballistic on, on me at that. And that, that's, that's when I knew that there was a problem. Like there, he, he pulled the, there's no debate on me at that point. Mm-hmm. Right. It's a very aggressive, it's a very aggressive movement. They'll, they'll, they'll be, uh, they are, they can be quite vicious. Um, it's interesting. I remember a couple of years ago there um, out in Vancouver, Amy, you'll know Morgan Ogre. Uh, mm-hmm. Yes, a very, very well-known activist. Um, and uh, she was very successful in cowing uh, people, getting them pulled off Twitter uh, for a while, you know, threatening to take them to the Human Rights Tribunal for saying things like a man cannot be a woman, you know, that, stuff like that, and uh, had some success there. But I notice went very quiet after a while, and you... you it used to be that people would actually be pulled off Twitter for saying uh, uh, trans women are not women or, you know, men cannot be women. Um, they don't do that anymore. I say it all the time. And I know that uh, Morgaine has not threatened me anymore or, or tried to, uh, you know, uh, hold me up as an example of transphobia or any of that. So, I don't know. I'm not saying the tide is turning. All I'm saying is that enough people are, and this is thanks to the gender critical feminists uh, who are making a dent and they are making enough headway. So at least you can say things that for a while you couldn't uh, or you couldn't without paying quite a price. Uh, I know Megan Murphy paid a very big price and sure. I think they would they took her off Twitter for life kind of thing. I mean, she was, she got the ultimate, you know, the ultimate punishment. Uh, but in her wake, a lot of people are saying exactly what she said that got her, yeah. you know, busted. And uh, they're saying it now with impunity because too many people are saying it for Twitter to start, you know, you, you, yeah. you can take one person off 10 per- people off 20 people off but you can't take 10,000 people off and and yeah. uh so there's there are little victories here and there but um it's uh, little, they go for the high profile if a high profile account gets mass reported they can still get removed Anna Slats was taken off Twitter permanently suspended yesterday um, oh really was yeah. She? yeah yeah that was a big hit I'm yeah. sorry, I missed that one. I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then in terms of Morgan OJ, I think um, a lot of people in Vancouver will offer lip service to this ideology, but um, OJ was, he ran for school board um, and for the, he tried to get nominated for uh, the provincial and federal NDP. Uh, mm-hmm. lost quite badly. Very time. badly, I remember. <laughs> I think, you know, people might, they they feel like they want to support this person publicly, but when it comes time to vote, the support's not there. No, no, I think so. so by the way, I should clarify that I, when people identify as female, I don't mind using the pronoun she. Uh, the right. same way, the same way I would for a, um, a drag queen, I, like, I, you know, you want to have she, you can have that pronoun. I don't care. 
I, I won't do the Z, Z, them, that I don't do they, all of that. I don't do any of that. I mean, everybody has to have their like cutoff points. Yeah. So yeah. I, I recognize why you want to call Morgane he. Um, I, that's not a hill I'm going to die on. I, I call them she. I don't care. Uh, I'm, I'm fine with that too. And I will call a lot of people by their preferred pronouns. I tend to just not do it for certain people. And uh, Morgane Osier. Yeah, certainly has deserved not to be yeah. called. <laughs> I get that. Yeah. It's interesting too, that you would mention drag Queens, um, Barbara, because I think back to the eighties and hanging out with, you know, a lot of my friends who were gay and going to gay bars and everything and coming into contact with drag Queens. And it was the whole uh, milieu and, and back then, you know, it was like, Ooh, it would seem kind of edgy and Ooh, this is, this is sort of, sort of, you know, marginal and things like this, uh, call, call a man a she who's dressed mm-hmm. up as a drag queen. And we kind of thought we were being sophisticated and all the rest of it. But had we known back then where it would lead, I mean, you, we couldn't even predict what's going on now. No, you where you have never. somebody like Daniel, Danielle Moscato, who's completely like, makes no, or that, um, Alex Drummond or what, whoever, making no effort whatsoever to even appear to be a woman. And the idea in the head is supposed to be enough that now we're supposed to all bow and prostate mm-hmm. and, and do the pronouns, right? I mean, would, would you ever have, have, have predicted, like, it's just... No, I would, I would never have predicted that. The, the, um, I, I, I tend not to concentrate too much on uh the the theatrical end of things you know the 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 drag queen story hour and all that and the this latest hbo film with oh my god the mother uh these uh crazy mothers that are actually uh dragging their kids up to literally to an altar in church did you see the mother who with the four-year-old kid phoenix wants to announce that he's a girl Oh. Uh, in this Unitarian church, it's part of an HBO documentary. It's, it's quite, uh, wow. it's very distressing when you see all these parents that are so into it. Um, and, and they have such a reverence for this idea of, uh, to me, it's like child sacrifice, literal child sacrifice uh, on the altar of this holy idea that, that, that these children are kind of holy children. And they're, they, they, the parents want their children to be part of this cult. Uh, you know how they used to have the Vestal Virgins mm-hmm. uh, in, in yeah. the, uh, the pagan religions? Yeah. Uh, this is a, a pagan kind of religion where children who say, I want to, you know, oh, I want to be a girl. They just have to say it once. And they're, the parents or the mothers usually are so thrilled uh, because they're going to be these special sanctified children um, and, and they're, everybody else is going to bow down to them. That is literally what happens in these ceremonies where they're, they're handed flowers, they're brought up to the podium. Little, little tiny children who, who, you know, think, uh, who believe that their imaginary playmates are real, uh, they're, they're, they are held up as examples of uh, this religion of gender fluidity. It's quite sick. It's quite sick. I've, lately turned my attention more to the realities of um, uh, biological men uh, in women's spaces, Mm -hmm. uh, the kind of women's spaces where uh, their entry actually threatens women's safety, security, or 
uh, in the case of sport, uh, changes the level playing field to a tilted playing field. And that's been, uh, that's been the part of this sickness uh, that has engaged my attention lately a lot. Because um, I've, just, I've just finished a collaboration on a book about the whole sport mm-hmm. trans issue. We've We've heard, we know with Linda Blade. That's right. With Linda yeah. Blade, one of my new favorite friends. I know. Um, Isn't she amazing? We're going to have I love her. her. I'm in love yeah. with her. And yeah. Uh, yeah. So, so I, I mean, a year ago, I didn't know who she was. And now it's like, she's, you know, my BFF. I mean, <laughs> I know she's great. Courage and her forthrightness and her down to earth. She's so yeah. centered and grounded. And I, I, I think she's doing amazing work in sport and uh, bringing this issue to the fore. So she's the actual writer of the book. I, I helped her with it. I helped with the editing and, you know, format and stuff like that. So I'm, I'm mm-hmm. so thrilled to have uh, had the opportunity to work with someone like that. And uh, we're really looking forward to that coming out but I mean in the process of doing this I learned a lot from Linda I learned a lot about the history um, and of course she's she has a PhD in kinesiology so biology is is her subject as well uh, so I've gotten a real education over the last six months of working on this little book and mm-hmm. and um, so that's been my that's been my primary focus so I may have missed some of the other stuff that's going on because you can't this it's everywhere it's like a, it a an oil slick you know it's just everywhere uh so it at this point it, it really is um because just um everything going on in the western world right now essentially there are um various you know uh, organizations there's there's judicial reviews there's you know um, everything and new organizations springing up on a weekly basis. And this yeah. is, this is amazing. Um, but I want to get back to this, the sports that, that you, um, you've written two opinion pieces for the national post recently, since you went on a, a very short sabbatical mm-hmm. <laughs> with the national post. <laughs> yeah, you could call it that. <laughs> um, and, um, and I was happy to see you as far as I can tell, you've done, four opinion pieces since you got back, two on sports and two on C6. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, do you C6 wanna... is terrible deal. Yeah, terrible I deal. know. Let, yeah. what, would you want to recap, you know, what happened with why you took a little break from the National Post and then we'll get, we'll get into C6? Okay, so uh, the National Post, like many other newspapers, uh, has been going through a bit of a metamorphosis due to not just the gender, not just the gender issue, but the whole... Um, the whole issue of uh, uh, their staffers uh, being social justice warriors and assuming that it's their job to be missionaries for um, uh, fighting the evils of society, which usually come under the heading of uh, uh, racism. And uh, under racism, you have different kinds of isms, transphobia, homophobia, you name it. Racism is the sort of general umbrella heading of everything that's wrong with society. And that's based on critical race theory. We don't have to go into that. That's, but it does come out of the academy um, and it's been brewing there for like many, many years. And so these graduates, they go into uh, industry and education and publishing and, and, and they, they feel it's their business to tell newspapers and magazines and publishing houses what they can publish and what they can't they you know it's it's their business to editorialize and to 
um, you know, actually uh, tell management and, and owners uh, what, what opinions they're allowed to share with the public, uh, which is something new, very different. And it's taken these publications by surprise in a way. They, they, they're kind of shocked by it. In some cases, since there's a lot of unity amongst the staff and they present a very united front, um, it, it's not always obvious to them that they can just say, hey, you don't like it, then you're all fired. You can't do that. You, it, it's hard to do. And so they've tried to take a more um, uh, a kind of juggling act kind of approach. And that's what the National Post was doing. Uh, it, it got to be quite evident. It, took, it was over a period of a, a year, I would say, where I began to notice that where I had had a lot of freedom to pretty well write what I wanted. And it was never as if I wrote anything hateful. I mean, I have strong opinions, but they were always evidence-based. And uh, so, you know, my, I, was, I was having my work was being held up and it was being spiked sometimes. And it got to the point where I was not having fun writing because I was uh, second guessing myself. So th what the, 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 the tipping point came when I did a book review of Deborah So's book, The End of Gender, it was a book review. It wasn't even my opinion. It was Deborah's opinion, but I, I wrote an approving book review of it as my column. And I even said to myself, well, uh, they can't say anything about this because all I'm doing is reviewing a book by a neuroscientist who's a journalist. I mean, you know, her credentials are, are uh, impeccable. And when that got spiked, I, I kind of said, well, okay, that I got to take a break, you know? So I did. Uh, but my leaving did lead to uh, really frank and really uh, exceptionally positive discussions with management and with my editor in chief. And it took them by surprise, but it kind of sparked, uh, 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 it gave them, I think it shocked them into an awareness that they had gone a lot farther than, you know, how a frog and boiling in cold water. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Well, I think that's kind of what happened to them, like in many other publications. And they said, I said, look, you've got to choose a lane. I think you have to, you know, either you stick with your brand or you become something else, but you can't, you can't be having the columnists bear the brunt. Like they, they can't be the ones to um, absorb <clears throat> the punches here. Uh, if mm -hmm. they can't be free, uh, then what's the point, you know, of, so I, I'm not saying that it was, me alone that 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 had them rethink what their mission was but in fact that they did have discussions they did have and they said if we return to our brand would you be willing to come back and i said absolutely i never wanted to leave i, I mean i yeah my home and if i feel free again to write what i want so i deliberately but i mean also because c6 happened to be there as a, a challenge um i deliberately came back with those columns on this, the very subject that had been the, you know, inspiration. Like, uh, yeah, I said, it's like, right? okay, <laughs> if you're really serious about me coming back, then you won't mind me writing these columns. And then they've been terrific. And uh, I've had no problem. I've had no editorial direction or anything. Just, uh, yeah, good column, evidence-based. That's what we like, you know, good stuff. So I, I do feel very good about uh, my return. And I will continue to write about this subject. And I've also been writing about it for the post-millennial longer mm -hmm. pieces for them. And, and they, they are, they, they have a much edgier brand. So that whole business is, is over. And I do intend to keep writing about this. And 
Um, C6 is a horrible bill. Uh, it's it's uh, guaranteed to become a recruiting to uh, basically it's 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 making therapists into uh, recruiters mm -hmm. um, because if you take your kid to a therapist when they're distressed and the therapist knows that they're not allowed to explore <clears throat> other avenues anything anything other than gender as your child's only form of uh, distress. Uh, then basically you'll get affirmation for something that no therapist, no therapist should be affirming any single thing without exploration, holistic expo exploration of a child's uh, problems if they're brought, you know, so it's, it's a terrible bill. Terrible. It, when you, when you really start to dig into the evidence and the data and you see that the vast majority of children that are socially transitioned you know, pre-pubertal, they go on to puberty blockers, mm -hmm. and the vast majority of those that go on puberty blockers then go on to cross-sex hormones, or as Dr. Laidlaw says, wrong-sex hormones. Mm -hmm. um, then it starts to become like a much more onerous situation, and I think this is, I mean, it's so easy when you when you watch these MPs in action in, in these justice committees, and even the senators watching them uh, deliberating over C-16 and you, and you just see that like, how many, they have so many bills and so many things that they're doing. How could they possibly dig down into what's going on? All of the evidence is there. They but, get, but they don't dig down because they, yeah. first of all, they form, look, one of the things that I wrote about was in 2014, 15, uh, you had this, uh, just to go back to sport, cause it's the area I know best. Uh, you have this group called the Canadian Centre for Ethics and Sport. And their job, their whole job, is to prevent cheating in sport. They were formed after uh, the doping scandals of the 1980s and 90s. And, and so, okay, we're going we're gonna to put this, uh, this, this, these gatekeepers in place. And all they're doing is, is uh, looking at, at what's ethical and what isn't in sport. So... Uh, for a while they did their job and all of a sudden in 2014-15 they come out with this whole inclusion policy guidelines and basically it's uh, any male any either way but the the, the one that has the impact is uh, any male that identifies as female doesn't have to take hormones doesn't have to live as a female does nothing it tells you that they identify as female boom they're allowed in women's sport um, and so you know, if you look at the document, you say, well, how did they come to this conclusion that because they say, oh, there's no scientific evidence that uh, males are any, have any special advantage, you know, or even if they do, it's not much, you know. Um, but if you look at the expert working group, like every time there's a bill or a, a guideline, policy, a policy guideline, it comes out after you've had a group formed to study the issue and to make recommendations. If you look at who's in the group, you find that in this case, it was all pretty well all ideologues. There were no biologists, there were no um, evolutionary biologists, there were no, uh, there were no uh, true sexologists like Dr. Zucker and Laidlaw or Blanchard or any of the actual experts, uh, disinterested experts in this field. Uh, so, obviously if you have only ideologues on your working group, then obviously the recommendations are not going to be based in evidence. They're going to be based in theory 
and in, um, in uh, a belief system. And that's exactly what happened in this case, which is why now, uh, because this, this uh, Canadian Centre for Ethics and Sport has a lot of power of persuasion in all the university sport complexes. So now these guidelines are in place all over Canada uh, in universities and uh, in all of these sport uh, facilities, males can enter women's sports with nothing more than a declaration I identify as female. It's a trickle down because it's coming from this, you know, center for ethics. It sounds so important. And and so, you know, uh, so if the center for Canadian center for ethics and sport is saying this, well then obviously it's going to, going to trickle all the way down. I mean, their CEO is a complete acolyte. Uh, He wrote in one of his, uh, in one of his, it was a letter or or whatever he, he wrote, uh, we now, you know, sex, uh, sex categories are obsolete, not gender categories, sex categories. So in other words, biology is no longer a guideline. And he's talking about sports. Sport is biology based. I mean, that's why would we, why would we have women's sport and men's sport if there was not a biological basis for it? It's if men and women had equal capacities, then it would just be an open field. And it's so specious. It's so, it's so contrary. This is science denialism. It's, uh, yeah. it's, you know, you talk about Holocaust denial. Oh, no, 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 no. All those figures about the 6 million. No, 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 no. It was really about 100,000. Yeah, but look here. Look, here's the, here's the film footage. No, no, no. That's all. No, no. That's, that's uh, fake news. Fake news. So yeah. you can't talk to people like this. They've, they've made up their minds that they would rather believe uh, in a belief system um, than facts or evidence or science. Uh, they have their pseudoscience. They, you know, they point to their studies, which they wrote, you know, like one writes it, the other one spouts it. Then the one who's spouting it writes another one. And then there's, there's like about 10 people writing all these pseudoscientific studies and they're all pointing to them as evidence that men and women are really no different in their capacities, uh, which is nonsense. So this is a good time for you to say, remember when we were in the pit bull wars together? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> right. So we can compare. Before, yeah. before you go there. Yeah. I just wanted to say it. So when we see this happening with sports and women's spaces, it's always the, the impact on women and girls is always so much larger than it is on men and boys. Um, of course. Even in, um, Richmond City, which is a suburb of Vancouver, their girls' sports team, uh, soccer team, sorry, became open to all genders, but the boys' sports team remains the same. Um, That's incredible. It, it, and, and, and can't they say, first of all, they could say the sports, the boys' one is open, but yeah. what girls are going to go into it? And if they did, what impact would it have on the boys? Zero, zero impact. So uh, obviously the boys who are mediocre athletes amongst the boys are going to want to play where they have the best option for winning. And, and these so-called authorities sport, you know, that should be, what is sport about fair play level, you know, and they pretend not to know what is happening to these girls and the loss of confidence and the law. And they're afraid to speak up. And if they do, they're censured. 
Um, this is a travesty of justice for girls uh, yeah. and women. And I, I never would have believed, I, I said to myself, well, all this craziness with the bathrooms and all, once it hits the sport world, that's where it's going to stop because everybody will rise up and say, oh, no, 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 no. That's one place where you're not, you're not coming in here because it is all about biology. That's what I thought too. I thought, uh, yeah, I was surprised. I was, I was surprised when it didn't, uh, when they, when they made their way into the sport world and nobody objected. But I think the general public, if you were to pull people on the street, nine out of 10 people, if you said, should, should a man who believes he's a woman play in women's sports, they're going to go, no. No, no, you're <laughs> right. Not, right? Yeah, these polls have been done in, in the United Kingdom. The, the yeah. polls were done. And uh, first they asked them, uh, do you think that trans uh, people should have all the same rights as everybody else? And unthinkingly, people say, oh, yes, yes, they should have the rights. They should have the rights. And then they get specific and say, well, do you think they should have the right to be in women's locker rooms? Oh, uh, uh, what about women's sport? Uh, uh, you know, so once, once you get specific and they actually visualize and they understand, then they say, no, they shouldn't have that right. And, and in England, they do have um, exemptions that, that where uh, sex-based rights do take precedence yes. over trans rights. And, and that makes but sense. But we, we have that here too. Well, we're supposed um, to. We're supposed to. Yeah. The problem is Canadians are mealy-mouthed. Yeah. We're not speaking out. I mean, the three of us are speaking out, and I'm well, anonymous, I mean, I right? think there's a lot but, of people, yeah, speaking, well, we're trying to speak out. We're trying but, to speak out. We're being squelched, and we're yeah. being um, suppressed, and we're being censured, and Amy's taken her major hits, and, you know, uh, it's not been pretty. Um, yeah. But the, the English women, the Scottish women, the Irish women, they, they have a, a fine tradition of free speech still. They have uh, a fine tradition of organizing um, their labor unions and all the rest of it. We just don't have it here. Like we've, it's been so soft. We've had it's really, really nice. Like Canada has been a wonderful experiment. Yeah, I, I Canada for some reason is, is uh, amongst, uh, it just very aggressively uh, pro-activists, pro-trans activists, the, the uh, media have been horrible on this issue. Mm -hmm. um, the CBC, our national broadcaster, uh, it's, it's disgraceful uh, what they have done and what they haven't done. Uh, they removed that documentary, that excellent documentary yep. that the BBC did. Um, they censored themselves, they removed it, then they, uh, they oh, and then they had uh, the drag queen documentary or the, the, um, drag oh yeah, drag kids or something. Yeah, drag kids, they, they yeah. have valorized, uh, they've told wonderful stories, their stories of transphobia. Oh, I mean, it's they all, all sunshine and lollipops and yeah. rainbows and um, So when you, they, but, but most of the other media have not been any better. And, and aside from, uh, you know, some of the more conservative, like, I mean, Post Millennial and Rebel News and, and uh, the National Post to a certain extent. And, I, and frankly, um, 
I don't understand why I should be one of the few regular columnists who picked up on this as an issue that I keep hammering away at. It seems to me this is a very important, uh, very important issue for all parents, for children. There's, this is so abusive to children, what they're doing with these kids' heads. Um, And I don't understand why parents are simply, I don't know. I, I, well, we talk about this in Cosbar a little bit. Um, and some of, some of our, the women in our network, uh, you know, take the same view. It's like, how could parents possibly allow this? This is insanity and lunacy. But then it's pointed out that, you know, a lot of these parents, what's, they're being um, coerced with fake statistics the and then the whole suicide thing suicide right and 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 it's and it's coercive to the parents you want to talk about coercive practices you know they are cowed they are afraid um but but i don't understand why a small group of parents would not get together on the side like when, when parents want something to happen, you know, they go to the board of trustees or they demand to have time at a meeting, you know, with, with parent-teacher. Like, in the past, parents have been effective in making their views known on, mm-hmm. on certain issues. I don't know. It seems to me, if a teacher said to me, oh, you know, uh, you don't want your child to commit suicide, I would say, really, are children committing suicide? Can you point me to some statistics on that? Well, Can you tell me how yeah. many in Canada, how many children have committed suicide in Canada because they but, weren't allowed to transition? Yeah. yeah. But Barbara, this is why I love you. I've been reading you since you started <laughs> at the National Post in 2003, I think it was. I, yeah. I, I was, okay, I, I would have considered myself kind of lefty back then. Um, like so many of us mm-hmm. were when in our in our youth, and uh, <laughs> and then I really I really like Saturday Night uh, Saturday Night Magazine, so I got yeah. a subscription to the Post just to get that magazine, and then so I'd go and I'd drop my kid off at kindergarten up the street, and I come home because I work from home. I come home and my National Post back in the day when you used to get it, you know, a pa- an actual paper. And I'd sit and have my coffee and open up the national, and I'd always go to your column. Oh, that's so nice. Yeah, I know. I, it sounds like I'm sucking up to you right now. I know. That's okay. I, you know, I'll take it. <laughs> so, and every, every column I, I read of yours, I was just like, this woman, is she like the only woman in Canada who's speaking sense? Like what? And, and I would just like be nodding along reading with you. And, but, you and the reason it resonated for me was exactly what you're saying when somebody in authority tells you something you know you my thing is is that i just have to investigate it for myself right so yeah. what you're saying here is the parents should be saying really is it really how, how many children are committing this is this is horrible how many are you know but they don't they just take the authority figure yeah. and yeah. it's mediated that way Right. So, yeah, I mean, it's shocking to me uh, that that uh, parents uh, would they are disturbed by it when they read about it, when they hear what their kids are, are learning. 
Um, but but I guess they people people are afraid of being singled out uh, and told that they're uh, the odd man out. This is mm-hmm. the way it is. This is this is the this is the world. This is how it is. This is the new. And I, I guess people really it takes a lot before they rebel. Um, I have a hard time reconciling that with being a parent. Yeah. And, you know, the idea that your child could be born in the wrong body when you love your children and you see them as perfect. And, you know, even, even if someone were telling me that this is the evidence, I feel like I would just question it so much because sure, loving my child that much. But um, even if my child, let's say my child was saying, yeah, I, I, I'm in the wrong body. I'd like to be. I wouldn't. What? What? Where is the value in saying, "Oh, you think you're in the wrong body? Let's see if we can get you into that other body that you want to be in. Let's see. A lifetime of taking pills, maybe you know, shots, and then surgery and infertility and everything. That's okay, though, because you think you're in the wrong body. Why wouldn't I, as a parent, say? what's really bothering you? And why would you, why would I assume to me, it would be an affliction. Why wouldn't you be allowed to say, gee, my kid is suffering from some kind of an affliction. He's distressed. He's, he's something's wrong here. I'd want to go to somebody who's disinterested and who knows all about this. And what is so horrible if the object is to make that child be happy in their own body like what's wrong with that because you're guaranteeing him then a lifetime of not taking medications off-label medications that are experimental i mean why wouldn't you want what's physically healthiest for your child yeah and if you do why would you listen to people who said uh oh you're you're no 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 you're 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 it's you're stopping this child in a holy pursuit. And that's the way they treat it, as if, as if there's nothing more sacred than um, a child wanting to uh, approximate the opposite sex in his look and his, you know, through surgery and through binders and through, there's something so screwed up about parents who actually would encourage their child along that path. Oh yeah, and things like Packers. Like you're oh getting my God, a yeah. dildo oh. and putting it in your face oh and your little girl's underwear. Oh no, 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 no. I can't. I can't. No, it's just you know, I mean it's sickness. Yeah. It is sick. It is quite sick. So um that just borders on pedophilia to me, the idea. Yeah, yeah. I find it I find it very there's a vicarious uh voyeurism, uh a fascination with uh, we're a kinky kind of approach to uh, yeah. uh, sexuality and and the body. Um, so I think any parent that is is really keen, um, they really need their head examined. Mm-hmm. Uh, they are. And for any of our listeners who don't know what a packer is, <laughs> <laughs> it's it's a little it's a little silicone dildo the size of a little boy's peen that for a little girl who thinks she's a boy to put in her underwear and the parents order these things online. And that you can get them for children as young as three is about the yeah. size that they start. So 
yeah, can you imagine a three, someone, you could still be in diapers and. Yeah, I, I think, I think all the adults that are involved in this movement, uh, like crazy Diane Aronsaft, that famous psychologist oh, yeah. who yeah. says, oh yeah, babies as young as like a couple of months old, when they're kicking off their, their, their onesies, they want to unsnap their onesies. They're really saying, uh, yeah, they don't want to, they don't, they, you know, they want to wear a dress. Like it's a boy who I, she's, she's so off the wall. And, and I've seen her lecturing to rooms full of people nodding along, nodding along as if a child of two who takes, oh yeah, she grabs the barrette out of her hair. She doesn't want to wear the barrette. She's telling you, she doesn't like her gender. She doesn't like, she doesn't want to be a girl. And, and you have people, uh, it's like they're drinking a Kool-Aid and, and they're, so they're, they're, they're willfully uh, abandoning their, their ability to think at all. Never right. mind. So I want, I want to ask you, like, what, how, you, you've been, okay, you've been a teacher and you've been in academia and you've been a journalist and, and, and so over the course of your career and this, the, you know, the steady sort of descent down into this lunacy and the lack of critical thinking, why do you think this is going on? Um, you know, this is a very, it's, it's a big question and, and you have to go, you have to go back to the counterculture, the, the, the whole, the whole, Marxist uh, movement of the 20th century, it never really, you know, we all thought that the end of the Cold War was the end of Marxism because it had been proven without a doubt what a disaster Marxism is wherever it's been uh, applied as the reigning uh, ideology in the Soviet Union, in, in, in China, in Venezuela, all the, you know, we, we, Cuba, we, we, we saw, okay, now we know definitively, this, this is a horrendous uh, ideology. But the academics, the, the intellectuals never really abandoned it. They always thought, well, uh, you know, those were mistakes and, and, and it didn't work out perfectly, but that was because it was never tried. You know, it was never, it was never uh, accurately put into place. And if only it had been applied uh, really um, correctly, correctly, it would have been a huge success. So they never gave up on it. And uh, what happened was that all these postmodernist Marxists, whatever you want to call them, they all became, you know, in the 1968, the revolution in the universities and the anti-war Vietnam played a huge I think this is a discussion that's a little too big for our, you know, for, the, uh, for tonight, but, tonight, but, it's, but, but basically all those, all right? those lefties, all those extreme lefties became uh, the, what they call the tenured radicals, the professors, and they took over the academy. I mean, in 19, when I went to school, the, I don't know even what the balance, I, probably the balance was left, right, 50, 50, but our professors didn't bring their politics into the classroom. I don't know what my, professors politics were we studied literature and we didn't you know we were not nobody really talked about politics too much um when i was growing up so i I don't remember any political discussions in the classroom at all i just yeah i was studying literature we that's what we talked about and that was also when i when i was growing up there there were um you wouldn't ask somebody how they voted in an election 
it was kind of, it was almost kind of personal unless they, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Like it was like, there was like the sanctity of the voting booth where, you know, it was, it was a private thing. You voted your conscience and nobody felt the need to tell anybody how they voted unless you were, you know, a party faithful and you were out there. Also, yeah. And you didn't judge people morally. You didn't judge, Oh, he's a Democrat. Ooh, you know, he's a Republican. Ooh, like, uh, you know, he's, Barbara, you're conservative. Ooh. Well, actually, I can say, honest to God, I, 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 if I, if you ask me what I really, what my values were, they're the same as they were in the 1950s. And at that time, I didn't think I was a conservative. I, consult, I thought I was a classic liberal. I mean, I believe, yeah. I believe in liberalism. I believe in the individual, I, individual rights. I believe in free speech. I believe in democracy. I believe in equality of opportunity, uh, that you don't judge people by the color of their skin, but by their character. I mean, I believe in all those things. Mm-hmm. Uh, those are all bad things now. Um, yes, you're a very bad Now person. you judge people by the group. You judge them by, <laughs> yeah. you know, it's, it's equity, not equality. It's uh, so everything I was brought up to believe and or that I adopted as the norm I thought it was the norm was liberal you know but I mean with conservative uh conservative in the sense of I I believe that human nature doesn't change very much and I do believe that traditional institutions um are very look my whole thing is if you ask me what do you write about I I say I write about the things that uh, make for a healthy society. That's that's my, what, what makes a society stronger? What mm-hmm. makes a society weaker? So I know certain things do make a society stronger. One is, is strong families, mothers and fathers, bringing up children together. Um, one is a certain amount of sexual restraint so that you, you know, uh, you preserve uh, the kind of dignity of the relationship between men and women and that you can't, preserve that dignity um, if there are no standards of behavior. Um, I don't know. I mean, you know, we could go on and on. One of the reasons I got interested in pit bulls is because I saw them as, um, as uh, deteri- wherever they are in, in numbers, uh, you see a deterioration in neighborhoods and in, um, uh, in, in public parks uh, in public spaces, they ruin, they ruin um, the atmosphere and they actually are dangerous, you know, to mm-hmm. children and all of that. That's how I got into it in the first place. Um, but one of the things that I found about the, the, the pit bull movement was the same denialism, science denialism, uh, denialism with regard to genetic evidence um, and, and, a denialism with regard to the, the, the science of epidemiology, which I didn't know a lot about until I got into pit bulls. And epidemiology is the study of trends and patterns in you know, sickness and in public health and all of that. So for example, uh, rapid onset gender dysphoria. When you have had um, a, a history of a very tiny number of people with gender dysphoria, and 90% of them are males that want to be female. And suddenly, and, and usually it's from a very early age on, and suddenly you get the, a total reversal, and it's suddenly girls between the age of 12 and 17 who have never had it in their childhood 
and suddenly they're all rushing to become boys and you don't question that and you don't say, wait a minute, this is epidemiology tells us that when you have a huge, you know, disproportion uh, and it happens quite suddenly and it happens in the presence of social media and, you know, autism and you have all these co, uh, then, then you have to pay attention. But that's where you get the difference between ideologues. Ideologues do not want to pay attention to epidemiology. The same thing happened with pit bulls. You have, you know, we, we, everybody knew, oh, wait, if you look at hospitals, kids in hospitals, any kid that's been in a hospital for more than six days because of a dog wound, the dog was a pit bull. That's epidemiology. Yeah. And remember, and there's a lot we want to hear data. about that. Yeah, there's a lot of hard data. And uh, so uh, for our listeners, I first got to know Barbara in the fight to keep kids safe and, and elderly. The kids, kids and elderly are the ones that are most affected by pit bulls. And That's right. I have a whole backstory as to why I got involved. But, but primarily, it was the child safeguarding situation. Yeah. Yes. So we were, both of us were very infuriated by the fact that there was a big lie being promulgated. And the, and the big lie with the pit bulls was, oh, they're very misunderstood dogs. And it's very racist and discriminatory yeah. to single them out as being bad. It's not their fault. It's bad owners, right? right. So, uh, and, and, and we knew what the evidence was. And we knew that it had to do with genetics. Uh, and we knew it had to do with biology. Mm-hmm. And, you know, all these same things uh, that today we're up against a different story, but it's the same blindness and uh, an unwillingness to look at evidence yeah. and facts, right? I've, I've seen the threads uh, running through just the same way with the, the fanatical pit bull fans versus the gender identity, radical trans activists. By the way, I, you, have to, you have to Google pit bulls, comma, queer theory. You'll get 2 million hits because the queer theorists okay. have adopted the pit bull as their kind of objective correlative to the victimization they see in their queer world. In other words, they, uh, they, 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 they see this phobia around pit bulls as kind of, uh, it, 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 it's the same thing as the phobia against queer people, right? Oh, um, yeah, I'm, yeah, not, yeah. I'm not surprised at all. That, that, uh, that is, is rife with pit bull lovers. <laughs> it's, that is really fascinating. And, and, and it's, it's, so, um, it's so apt that they would like, it, yeah. it just makes complete sense because in the same way that women are told that we must stuff down our survival instinct. Mm-hmm. Right. around predatory men, parents are told that they must stuff down their survival protective instinct of their children and say, oh, it, it, it's just a nanny dog. It's the nanny dog, right? which is, of course, a complete myth. But you remember all those things you've seen in, um, 
the, uh, those videos and all the stuff that the Pitbull Advocacy Movement puts out. They dress the dogs in tutus. and yeah, they, put they put them in drag. Them. And there's always the picture of the, of the adorable Pitbull with a child draped over him asleep. Mm-hmm. Like, look at how safe this dog is. Mm-hmm. And they actually... And, this, and the parents are actually encouraging the children to play with the pit bulls. They are so out there to prove that this is a safe dog, that they actually will put their children in danger in order to show how virtuous they are. And honest to God, I don't think it's a coincidence that both of us started with pit bulls and ended up trying to save children from uh, ideologues that would rather their children end up on medical interventions and infertility and a lifetime of of drugs and surgery uh, than admit that uh, there's something epidemiologically wrong here uh, and that this is is a weird and ridiculous uh, belief system because uh, there are two sexes and 99.5% of people identify their gender with the sex that they were born with. And to pretend otherwise, that this whole fluidity thing, um, am I allowed to say bullshit on your show? I don't Absolutely. know. Absolutely. Oh, all right. So it's bullshit. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you can even say it's fucking bullshit if you oh, want. Oh, no, no, I don't. Oh, no, no, no. I'm a lady. I'm a lady. <laughs> I want to ask about the activists in both <laughs> movements. I, I see all the parallels, but how about the harassment and abuse from activists? I'm assuming you received some from Pitbull activists as well. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. oh, no, no. I received a lot. I, I was, uh, uh, I was uh, Mrs. Pitler, they called me. <laughs> and um, I had I had these pitbull I had these pitbull people I kept a whole I kept a lot of them and I I uh, some of them are just you, you wouldn't believe what they say and the language my dear uh, terrible and and some of them would say um, first they came for the Dobermans you know the the thing about oh, yeah. like yeah yeah the uh, pastor near my my molar. Um, or they would, uh, somebody, one compared the, the pit bull, his pit bull to Anne Frank. Like they, they feel, they, they identify with these dogs. Um, they're victims, victims, uh, and they themselves are victims in one way or another. And so misunderstood. So misunderstood. And, and, and they, uh, there was one academic, a PhD thesis that I read where this woman um, interviews uh, black and Latino youth who own pit bulls and she identifies them as they've been harassed by the police and they and the, and you know how police shoot these pit bulls for nothing because they've never done anything wrong right police just go around wanting to shoot pit bulls like it you know not because they happen to be mauling somebody to death but you know just because they they love to shoot pit so so she was identifying the pit bull as the victim of racism, like it, it's a it's a kind of a substitute, a surrogate for mm, yes. blackness, um, and that's why uh, anti-racist activists uh, and queer theorists uh, they they've adopted the pit bull as their kind of um, you know animal other or I don't know you should, there's some weird academic 
feces out there. You should. I'm going to have to check those out. Oh, you won't believe some of them. No, no. This is a rabbit hole that is so deep. uh, And and it just makes you wonder the the weirdness of people and so many intellectuals. Um, It's very frightening because, you know, plain old stupidity because of low IQ, that's too bad, but... (laughs) That's a natural thing. And, and uh, you know, but when, when very high IQ people decide to adopt crazy theories, um, they can apply their intelligence to mangling the language and to forcing people to say things that are untrue. Like they know they have techniques for uh, imposing their, their craziness on other people. And usually it's through uh, compelled speech starts with pronouns and then it moves on to a woman, a, a, a trans woman is a woman, say it, yeah. uh, you know, and because she's a woman, therefore she has a female body, you know, like they, they, they yeah. make you say it because uh, if you say it, then you, they own you, they own your thoughts. You yeah. can't let them do that. You can't just can't. Yeah. Yeah. The female penis, which I, I always enjoy when you tweet your daily reminder that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, I mean, I mean, in a way, I, I, I maybe I, I, I flatter myself that I'm more important than I am, but I, I'm surprised. I was kicked off uh, Twitter once uh, for calling um, the gender fluidity uh, pedagogues uh, uh, body snatchers because I was. Oh, they yeah. were, well, I said they're 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 stealing gay children, and to me, uh, that's pretty well what they were doing. And I was in a Twitter fight with a gay man who's an ally. Just like there's a lot of feminist women, they they say they're feminists, but they're allies of the trans movement. There's a yeah. lot of gay men who are also allies, and I have to keep saying to them, "Do you realize that when you were a kid, you could have ended up convinced that you were like trans instead of?" just growing up to be gay, what are you supporting these people for? Like, uh-huh. you, you are helping to wipe out a new generation of gay and lesbian children. What's the matter with you? You know? It's very depressing to me, especially how many women, it seems to me that there are more women supporting this ideology than there are men. Yes, because they're so nurturing. Yeah, and when you <laughs> yeah. The, the surveys in the United Kingdom, when, when those surveys happen and they break it down by sex, so who supports um, women's only spaces and, and who would say that a biological male shouldn't be in these sex segregated spaces, it's the males who, it's fewer males want other males in women's spaces. <laughs> well, the normal men, normal men totally get it. They understand. He says, oh my God, like what kind of a man would take advantage of a woman, like, you know, I mean, normal men do not want to use their strength or their to make women uncomfortable. This is, yeah. you know, they, they, whoa, like that's, they think that's terrible. But women are so nurturing that, oh, inclusion, 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 we have to make them feel 
comfortable. So, so you've got all these girls that are trained to include these boys when they join. Now, when they're kids, it doesn't make that much of a difference whether the boys are playing on their teams. But the minute they hit puberty, then it does make a huge difference. But they've already been so brainwashed into thinking that it's their job to make these boys feel comfortable, you know, so. That's, that's female socialization right there. Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of, a lot of women have to be taught that it's okay to have boundaries. Yeah. And uh, it's okay not to be compliant. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, it was my nature in many ways not to be compliant. So for me, it was easy. I don't need to affirm you. Affirm yourself. I know. I mean, I, I don't know how this got to be like, a, a, it's society's problem if, if they're not accepted everywhere and if they're not caught, you know, but there's a kind of reverence. You see this and it used to be that, it's interesting, in the gay rights movement, first it was acceptance, fine. Then it was rights, fine. And then it was a kind of no, no, no. These are very special people. They have to be accorded a respect and a sort of reverence um, because it's a sort of, uh, there's, there's something more pure and beautiful. Magical. They're and magical. Magical. You have to, you have to sort of kind of uh, pay homage because it's, it's, it's not just part of uh, human nature that some people are no, these people are are kind of very special and and very um, they're better they're better people. Um, Douglas better. Murray, who writer Douglas Murray, who's also a homosexual male, has talked about that both in regards to um, the issue of homosexuality and feminism, where he's he'll say these groups are equal but better. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Or uh, they're the same as everybody else, except except where they're superior, you know. Uh, mm -hmm. But of course, uh, you know, I've I've been very critical of feminism because of that. I thought that uh, I and I still think I'm 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 not an ideologue at all. And right now, I happen to be very supportive of women's uh, rights because right now women need that support. Um, but I've also been very supportive of men's rights when I think they've been shafted in, in certain areas. And they, uh, I think they've, there's been a steady drumbeat of uh, uh, group hatred of, of them amongst uh, certain cadres of, of radical feminists, which I think is very unfair. Uh, you know, I don't like any kind of collective judgment. Uh, oh, oh, well, you know, men, men are awful. Men are this, men are that, they're, mm -hmm. you know, some men are, and some men are heroic and wonderful and terrific. And I, I, I really hate to see any group maligned like that. Uh, I don't like it when men talk about women. Uh, you know, some men who no. have become very bitter about women uh, because of feminism. So they'll say, oh, women, they're all gold diggers or all this or all that. And I don't allow that kind of talk either. They're all I think bad drivers and they're all... <laughs> yeah, I mean, you no, know, it, it, that kind of generalization, it, it does not help anybody. Like, no, it sure like, does not. And... And this whole idea of gender identity, I just say, you know, I'm a, first and foremost, I'm a human. Mm -hmm. And I think the most, most interesting thing about me is my brain and my heart. Sure, and, but, but I happen to be, yeah, but I happen to be housed in a, in a female body. Okay. But, I don't, but, but right? still, that's yeah. very relevant. But that, but, but look, 
I think you have, you, you don't, you know what? It's like goldfish doesn't say I'm swimming in a bowl because like they, you know, they're swimming around in water. They don't know what a bowl is because yeah. so it, so it's like we're in our bodies. We don't say, Oh, look, I'm in this womanly body. This is yeah. it's who I am. And I've never been anything else. So I, you wouldn't a, know what it would feel like to be anything else, you know, no, but, it, so, but it certainly yeah. is one of the most relevant things about you because every, everything that you, uh, you know, your whole life in, in a sense uh, is, is, is geared to adjustments to your body and what happens to your body. Sure. And it's how, it's your instrument that you're experiencing the world, you know, well, like, that's it. okay. Right? So yeah. yeah. And, 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 and the biggest yeah. things in your life, are you, are you going to be, are you going to have a baby or you're not going to have a baby or, you know, are you going to be married or not be married? And if you are, yeah. are you going to have a career that allows you to be you know, like th- these are yeah. these are choices that women have to make um, because they're women and they're existential, right? So they are existential. You yeah. like what I I okay. Think about it this way. Think about um, a girl learning about the birds and the bees, right? And the first time, what do most girls think about when you find out that a penis has to go into a vagina, maybe your vagina someday, and you're eight years old. I, that's how old I was when I found out about that. And I just went, ew. Ew. Ew, yeah. What? I know, I, I had the same reaction. It was like, ew. <laughs> that yeah. can't be, my, my older cousin told me about it. And I'm, and I'm like, no. Yeah, yeah. I know, I think I was, I, I think I was grade five and my girlfriend told me I had the ex- exact same reaction. It was yeah. uh, weird. Ugh. But I kind of think if we want to do generalizations, right? Like most girls are going to have that reaction, right? And yeah. that, that, that's, this is a very basic fundamental thing. And most guys, most little boys, you would tell them that and they go, really? Hmm. <laughs> tell, tell me more. I'd like to know more about that this. <laughs> I never thought about it that way. Um, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> oh dear. Well, uh, <laughs> on that note, I think our, we've come to the end of our time. <laughs> uh, we'll probably, you'll probably have fun uh, editing this down because yeah. we've gone way well, over time. We'll, we'll uh, edit. And we don't have to keep to a strict, it's the gender critical story hour, but we don't have to keep to a strict one hour time slot because this isn't broadcast so um are you thinking about making a film around this subject or no (laughs) that's why we're doing the podcast and that's why i'm doing um cause bar okay um uh because um once i i made okay so i've been i've worked in media for like 30 years Mm-hmm. And in various capacities, I've been in, you know, advertising, I've been in um, live action, I've been in animation, and I've been all around the block. And then I finally got the opportunity, I studied screenwriting, and I, I got the opportunity to make my own film, um, co-directed and produced it. And because it was my first one, I didn't have funding. So I, it was, I funded, we had a bit of like, investment, but I self-funded the completion of it. And that's the once in a lifetime thing. Like you, you, to complete a film, you put your own money in once and like, that's it. Right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, I mean, I haven't even made my money, but like the way Canadian um, media works, film and television is it's all government funded. 
Mm-hmm. Right. So if you do an, if you, and so you get paid up front, you get government money up front, everybody gets paid. Um, it's not required to be commercially viable because all of the deals are done. You get your government money, you have your broadcaster and it goes out and you get paid and you walk away. But if you're independently funded, you know, uh, self-funded, um, they do it on an acquisition. So when I sold my film to CBC, it was on a two-year window and I got $10,000 for that. Okay. Mm. So who could make any money off of that? Right. I mean, you can't, it's not viable. So I did it. I self-funded because I wanted to get the film done and I want, I wanted that credit as a director and a producer. Mm. And thankfully I could leverage it because you need to have the broadcast credit. So, and then you can go to telefilm or whatever, but then I just started seeing what they were funding. And I was just like, everything was identity politics, Mm -hmm. wokeism and all the rest of it. And I was like, I'm not interested. Mm -hmm. Like, I I don't think I, I, I want, I want to tell interesting, quirky stories that are like, like human interest stories with universal themes and all this kind of stuff. They don't care because if you can't shoehorn it into uh, woke ideology, then they're really yeah. not interested. Plus, yeah. I did use, I would get some points for being a woman before, but that's not good enough because mm-hmm. I'm not a woman of color. Mm-hmm. I'm not a lesbian. I'm not whatever. I can't tick enough boxes mm-hmm. to get the funding now. Mm-hmm. So. I don't think I will make another film myself. I'll work on somebody else's. If they want to go and get the funding and whatever, I'll work on it. No, I can see where, where the obstacles are just so enormous that it just sucks all the ambition out of you because you have to be something you're not. You have to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. And yeah. I'm just not interested in being the telefilm and all those funders and, you know, Ontario creates and every provincial when they are the propaganda arm of the government. Yeah. That's all they are. Mm-hmm. Right. And yeah. so if you don't fit with, with the government mandate of the ideology, then they're not going to fund your work. Mm-hmm. They, there's no art for art's sake or anything like that. You know, you just, everything's ideology based. So I won't, in the near future. I mean, I'm writing screenplays, but, and oh, hopefully uh, I would like to sell though. Let's shop those around, but, um, but to fund and produce my own documentary, I don't think that's going to happen. Mm. And that's why I'm putting my time into Cosbar and this podcast and whatever, because I feel like that's where I can take my skills and make the most impact. Well, I think it's fantastic. And I, I think considering you started this, when did you start Cosbar? Because it wasn't that long ago. Coming up on a year. Just a year, but look, you've made a real impact. Oh, thank you. I think so. I mean, you know, you're organized and, uh, you know, you, your, your, your statements are always like very polished. And I mean, you look like, you look like, a an older and more, uh, established organization. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Which is is a compliment because you got your act very quickly. Well, and it's funny you should say that because one of our um, initial um, criticisms when we launched and they saw the website and how polished it was and, and, and right away it was like, oh, this is, this is AstroTurf, right? Who, who's funding you? Which right wing, you know, oh, yeah. <laughs> is funding yeah. you? And, and it's just like, 
no. And then, and they were asking us, well, who's behind this? Because originally we didn't put the founding members' names on the website. And then once we got that criticism, we thought, okay, we better put our names. And that's when I came up with my pseudonym. And um, there's a couple of other pseudonyms on there. Amy's way out there in all her glory. And there's a bunch of other, we have 10 founding members and um, some very brave women who have their names on the organization. And now we have a cross-country network of over 60 women who work with us. Fantastic. And we all, we all plot and plan together. And we're now aggregating the other organizations that are coming on board. So we work with, you you know, Pamela Buffon at Canadian Gender. So Canadian Gender Report, we work with her. We liaise with We the Females. We, and now with the Women's Human Rights Campaign, the Canadian chapter with Kathleen Lowry, whom you... Oh, yes. Yeah. And uh, Gislaine um, Gendron from uh, Pour des Femmes du Québec. Yeah. Yeah. And um, we're all, we're all finding each other. We're all with Megan and with, you know, we're all coming together. It's pretty incredible how much has happened in the last year in terms of the networking among Canadian women speaking out. I feel it. I feel that there's, I feel that you're making an impact. I mean, I feel a lot of energy coming from these because they're the, the organization shows the energy is directed at real ends and real, you know, uh, it's not just venting. It's, it's, uh, there are, this is demands are being made around bills and laws and, and, you know, so, so we're meeting with MPs and yeah, you know, I mean, I I think, I think you're going to make a political impact. You're going to punch, you know, above what you think your weight is. And I, I believe in you guys. I, I really do think you're the heart and soul of the resistance. So you've got to succeed. Thank you. That really, that really means a lot in your endorsement. Well, that's great. When our book comes out, I hope you'll in- interview uh, you Linda. Yeah. Linda, she's a terrific spokesperson for that whole area. Mm-hmm. And she works uh, very closely with Cosbar too. So I'm in yeah, in well, with her well, a lot. Terrific, so. terrific. Yeah. Does she know that you and I were in the Pitbull Wars together? <laughs> I don't know, but she'll know now listening to this, listening yeah. to the podcast. <laughs> but I think, I actually think that I, um, not to toot my own little horn here, but I think when I first got in touch with you last year, Barbara, and said, told you that we were starting Cosbar, and I was talking about the women that we were working with, and I said, and there's Linda Blade. Do you know Linda Blade? And you go, I don't think I've heard of her. And you, I don't think you knew her yet. I didn't. What happened yeah. with uh, Linda was she, uh, did she get in touch with me? Anyway, she wanted to, she wanted me to write an op-ed about, yeah, I think she asked me if I would write an op-ed and she was very passionate about, I said, uh, it's better if you would write it and I'll pitch it to the post-millennial because. Oh, that's right. I remember. Yeah. And, and I said, it's always yeah. better if the person who has authority in the area and so I said, look, she says, well, I've never written an op-ed. I said, I'll help you. So I said, send me what you want. You know, she sent me a draft. I, I fixed it up. I sent it back. Like we went back and forth three or four times until it was really polished and beautiful. Then I sent it to the post-millennial and they published it. And it was a gem. Like, I mean, and, and it made waves and she was all excited. Um, and then um, 
I wrote one, a, a long one, on the uh, Canadian uh, Centre on Ethics, their stupid guideline thing. Um, and she liked that. And, uh, and, and then I was talking to Ezra Levant, mm-hmm. and he, he publishes these short books. And he said, uh, well, look, if you, if you ever have an idea for a book, you know, I'd love to uh, print anything you want to do, I'll do it. I said, you know what? I, I'm, I'd love to have uh, a book about the sports thing. And I, ha- I know the writer to do it and I'll put my name on it with her. He said, great, do it. So that was when I got in touch. I said, we've got to write a book. And that Fantastic. was, yeah. We're going to, we're going to look forward to that. And we're definitely having Linda on. Oh, yeah. Great. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. She's a doll. She's a doll. Well, we've um, gone way, yeah. way past our time, but we, yes, could we have but continue. It's like for much longer if we no 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 i think uh we're probably you know it's past my bedtime and yes (laughs) sorry for keeping you past no it's been fun it's been fun i've loved it Uh, okay great and uh thank you for the editing and thank you for having me it's been a pleasure and nice to see you (laughs) yeah you too yeah okay take care see see you on twitter don't, get, <laughs> don't get kicked off no yeah. no I'll try, I'll, I'll try not to okay okay nice to meet you amy yes you as well okay. bye barbara bye amy bye thanks for listening gender critical story hour is written and produced by amy ham and esme v intro music by nahanda We'd love to hear from you. Tell us your peak trans stories, how gender identity ideology has impacted your life, or just say hi and let us know your thoughts about the podcast. Write to us at gendercriticalstoryhour at gmail.com. Tweet to us at gcstoryhour. Take care, keep strong, and keep talking. Bye for now. Gender Critical Story Hour is sponsored by the mythical biological female. I'm your man.